For AZPM, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, meet journalist Danielle Kamara, the reporter who is now covering the U.S.-Mexico border for AZPM. Hear about the new animated documentary called Home is Somewhere Else. And multi-talented artist Rick Wehmer talks about his first poetry collection, Long Shadow Days, Grief Walking, personal stories about living with love and loss. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Recently, astute listeners may have noticed a new on-air voice coming from Danielle Kamara, who is now covering the ever-shifting landscape of the U.S.-Mexico border for AZPM. Next, I talk with Danielle Kamara about her background and why she feels these stories are so important in our community. I lived in Mexico for about four years, about 15 years ago. My son was born in Mexico, and um, that I lived down there before I became a reporter. I was traveling. Um, I was a musician and an artisano, and I moved to Tucson when I came back to the States um, with my then-husband, who is from Mexico, and he hadn't been to the States yet, and I decided Tucson would be a good place for us to, to live When you became a reporter, what was your first area of focus? What was the primary thing that you wanted to report on? When I was in school to become a reporter, and I went to school in my mid-30s, started in my early 30s, graduated in my mid-30s, I wanted to be the border reporter at the Arizona Daily Star. That was one of my first aspirations. I knew I was going to stay in Tucson. I knew I wanted to cover the border. And the star seemed like the right place for me at the time. I also pretty quickly started doing some local politics reporting, and I was covering some local elections and primaries. So Danielle, is there a work, whether it's literary or in-depth reporting, that you think has really been influential on you as a journalist? The first thing that really made me think about being a reporter was listening to This American Life, which I first heard by accident, then I started listening to the podcast, and this was, at this point now, probably 15 years ago, it was a while ago. Years later, uh, I came across this show, Radio Ambulante, which is, I think of it as almost a Spanish version of This American Life. It's also NPR produced, a Spanish language podcast, and it tells stories that are both odd and unique, but relatable at the same time. And I think that's something that I think about in my reporting, trying to make things understandable while telling stories that you haven't necessarily heard before. Danielle, as you approach covering all of these different stories, all these different aspects of the border, can you break it down into areas or categories that you feel are the most important? I've realized as I was covering the border, first at the Arizona Daily Star, and now here for AZPM, that I've really been focusing on five topics, which are humanitarian issues, crime, economics, the environment, and arts and culture. To say I cover the border 
doesn't say all that much, really, because the Arizona border is not a monolith. Even the border in Nogales is not a monolith. It is so many things. It's people living their lives, whether that's migrants who are waiting on the Mexico side, migrants who are on the U.S. side trying to figure out what to do next, whether it's border patrol agents or customs officers seizing drugs, or whether it's the environmental effects of the border wall. I approach covering the border by wanting to tell the stories that can give people a full picture of what the border is actually like. In a lot of the political rhetoric that we hear, it gets kind of shrunk down into one thing, whether you think that might be a crisis or a humanitarian issue or drugs flooding across the border. And really, the border is so many things. On our way to the studio uh, just a few minutes ago, I asked you a question about your opinion on something. And you mentioned how just last week you had been talking not only to officials on the border, but also to migrants. And I, I wonder what's fundamental to you in building contacts to make connections with people, especially migrants who may be suspicious of why they're being interviewed. I approach being a reporter and making contacts and sourcing with the same kind of approach that I use in my personal life and in my everyday life. That is to be my authentic self and to really treat people with respect. When I'm talking with migrants, I really try and explain to them who I am, what I'm doing, how I'm going to use the information they're giving me. And I want to make sure that they understand that so that they can make that decision whether or not they want to share their story. Journalists talk about unbiased reporting, and I think that that is difficult to achieve as human beings who have biases. I need to be fair. And so therefore, I tried to paint a complete picture. I tried to give a voice to everyone who I think has an important voice in the story and who has something honest to say. And so far, the feedback that I've gotten for the most part has been really positive from, quote unquote, both sides of stories that I tell. With stories from the end of Article 42 to a place where the migrant population is increasing along with Border Patrol recruitment, listen for more stories from Danielle Kamara on AZPM. A new animated documentary shares the true stories of some young people with families who are living the migrant experience between the U.S. and Mexico. We begin with a review from film essayist Chris DeShiel. Whenever the subjects of immigration and the southern border come up, we inevitably find ourselves contending with a lot of arguments and voices being raised, along with images of a faceless invading horde propagated on TV by politicians and demagogues. The good news is there's treatment for this type of mental derangement. It's called Recognizing Immigrants as Human Beings. Home is Somewhere Else is an animated nonfiction film that does exactly that. Three true stories, told in the words and actual voices of the people involved, are presented in animated form, each story featuring a different artistic style. The first is called Jasmine's Pursuit of Happiness, in which a young Mexican-American girl, a citizen of the U.S. by birth, tells about the struggles of her parents, who are not citizens, to stay in the U.S. and raise her. The animation style is childlike, modeled on Jasmine's own drawings, but there's nothing crude or awkward about this because it's beautifully done. 
The drawing matches the flow of Jasmine's voice with an understated effectiveness that immediately involves us in her story. I'm the only U.S. citizen in my family. It makes me feel like there's hope because if we were all undocumented, I really couldn't really say anything. But since I am a U.S. citizen, I can say something and I can defend myself and my family. And I could help other families too. I guess it's my right and it's my duty. Next we have A Tale of Two Sisters about Evelyn and Alyssa, young women who grew up undocumented in the U.S. and now live on different sides of the border. Evelyn went back to Mexico, partly just to be free of the fear of discovery. Alyssa has remained in Los Angeles, where she sees a future for herself in her career, an opportunity that is out of reach for her in Mexico. These two miss each other terribly, and much of this section consists of their frank conversations on FaceTime. Beyond the issues around immigration explored, it's about the deep love and attachment they feel for each other. The style of animation is more sophisticated, more passionate, lovely in the way it evokes the sisters' emotions and heartfelt connection. When we were in kindergarten together, I was probably like four or five, and I think you were like three or four, maybe. I was in the resbaladilla, and somebody pushed me, and I was crying. And then you came over to this kid and like trying to punch them because like, you know, they hurt me. Yeah. That was embarrassing. <laughs> We've always had that kind of relationship ever since. I've always been the crybaby. And like, you're always over there, like trying to protect me ever since. Like I'm so rude sometimes. You're fine. Or at least with me, you're fine. Cause you know, we're sisters. The final story is called Between Dos Mundos. We've already met the narrator, Jose Eduardo Aguilar, introducing in his animated persona the first two stories in a Spanglish slam poetry style. Now he takes center stage in the true account of his growing up undocumented in Utah and his arrest while on his way to a demonstration protesting a proposed anti-immigrant measure in that state. Then through him we experience the methods of ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, the Detention Center, the Abuse, the Deportation. This animation is the most complex, stark, dramatic, angular. One of Jose's acts of resistance is to take the name El Deporte as his poetic title and to fight and advocate for others caught up in the system. After high school, uh, being undocumented is when empieza a pegar más gacho. Yo perdí una beca por no tener papeles. Y empecé a ver los límites que se me estaban poniendo enfrente así en mi vida. So, varios años, como tres años después de high school, decidí meterme a college, en Salt Lake Community College. And I heard about this march for the immigrant rights, you know, like, y eso, pues yo no lo veía en Heber, in the town where I grew up, no lo veía, you know, y era lo que yo quería traer a la comunidad. Y fui y hice, like, some flyers. Hice unos flyers así, bien feos. Y fui por todo Heber en mi patineta, en mi longboard. Y todos decían, OK, like, una marcha chido, you know, pero nadie me ponía mucha atención. Home is Somewhere Else illuminates the lives of real people using their own words and their own points of view, trusting in our innate intelligence, empathy, and good sense. The artwork from three different animation teams is gorgeous and expressive, 
Everything in the picture seems to flow so naturally. I'm grateful that I got to see this little gem. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Chris DeShiel. Next, I have a conversation with the filmmakers who created Home is Somewhere Else. I am Jorge Villalobos, and I am the co-director of Home is Somewhere Else. Hello, my name is Carlos Hagerman. I am co-director with Jorge and producer of Home is Somewhere Else. Tell me if the choice to use animation was inspired by making these stories more accessible to viewers. That's something that we we thought from the beginning when we started to think about making this film. We knew it was very important for us to be able to reach younger audiences. What we are going to try to achieve with this film that is to generate some some empathy. We think it's very important that these messages are given in this age where young people are defining their social being. This kind of, of, of movies can contribute them to have like uh, a different uh, view of the world where they can understand better uh, what other people are going through and that maybe they didn't know it before seeing this picture. So, yeah, that that was one of the main objectives of of making Home Somewhere Else. What would you like people to know about Jasmine's story and the approach you took to bringing it to the screen? This is Carlos. Jasmine was the seed uh, of this film. When Jorge was living in Florida, in Miami, he saw a TV reportage by Jorge Ramos, who is a leading journalist. And the reportage was about U.S. citizens, children, their parents were undocumented, and they didn't want to come back uh, from school to find that they were left alone and that their parents could be deported. It struck uh, a nerve in him that we should do something about this point of view of the fear of family separation. And that was like the first effort that we did to find a family that could tell their story. And Jorge, you can tell us a little bit about that first encounter with Jasmine. Well, it was very special moment because obviously Jasmine's family, uh, her parents, Ivan and Laura, they trust us in the sense that uh, because they, we, we told them it was important that uh, most people knew about their stories. And even though they didn't quite understand what an animated documentary meant, they trust us in the sense that they knew we had this this intention of making something bigger to trying to reach bigger audiences. Uh, the first time we met, the first interview I had with Jasmine, she was 11 years old at that time, so she was a little nervous, and also I was a little nervous because it was the first time. That day I, I had some crayons and white paper that I I took to the interview, and I, I asked her if she could draw her cats and her family, and uh, so she began drawing, and she began to get a little uh, more, um, like, confident about what she was doing, about about what we were going to do, about this interview, and 
it was great because when she finished she finished doing doing these drawings, like I knew in that moment that that was the visual style. I sent the pictures to Carlos, and I told him, "Look, I think the the first the, the Jasmine story should look like this." So we took those drawings to the animation team, and they work and they make this first story to look like if it's seen from the point of view of Jasmine, which we think it makes it more more powerful. Could each of you tell me an aspect of how you think that the sense of family and its importance in Mexican culture defines the immigration experience? Yes. In fact, we, we often talk about home is somewhere else, not as a movie about migration. It's a movie about the family. I think that family is maybe the most important element of identity that people in in Mexico has because I think that through family we can see where we come from and we can see where we are going, what, what like where do we want to be in the future. When you put this element, the family at risk of being separated, I think that's why these stories are so so tragic, I would say, uh, because it's like making very, very vulnerable something very deep inside uh, the, the people. So, And also, I think this is the reason why we are having so a good response of the audience, like in a emotional connection, because I think everybody reflects themselves in this possibility of losing their, their family. I, I don't know, Carlos, if you, you want to complement this? I feel the same way as you, Jorge. For instance, in the U.S., there's other kind of institutions that hold, let's say, that your livelihood. For instance, there's the government and the opportunities that you have from very serious institutions. And in Mexico, I think that the most important institution, let's call it institution, that you can trust is your own family for almost everything. It's kind of your own power force to do things. But especially if you are a family and you have migrated to another country, you are very much together in this adventure. And I think that the fear of being separated is even harshened by that. My thanks to Jorge Villalobos and Carlos Hagerman, the directors of Home is Somewhere Else. Cinema Tucson presents the film at the Fox Tucson Theater, Wednesday, May 24th at 7 p.m. Information is available at foxtucson.com. Rick Wehmer has been a part of the Southern Arizona arts community for about 21 years as a performing artist, mime, musician, director, playwright, author, and publisher. Wehmer has just created his first collection of poetry, and I talked with him about why he chose to share his outlook on the experiences of love and loss. The biggest thing that I'm interested in 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 all of my work, whether it's the writing or the stage work, is metaphor. 
mime is really based in this symbolic, metaphorical, visual language and compression of thought, emotion, action. And to me, I find a very interesting alignment with the structure of verbal language that's used in poetry and that element of metaphor and symbolic language, too. So the book is called Long Shadow Days, and it's subtitled Grief Walking. And the first question I have for you, Rick, is tell me why you decided to write around that subject, something that touches so many lives, yet so much of it goes unspoken. At a very young age, I became very aware of the consistency of loss, not just huge losses, but how even as a young child, maybe by the time I was eight to 10, I was thinking about even small losses being things we had to contend with, whether it was the disappointment that uh, my sister got an appointment that came up at school and so we couldn't go to Kentucky Fried Chicken that we had expected to do and it disappointed me, right? And somehow I tied like the notion that, gosh, every day there's a ton of loss that we're trying to kind of deal with, right? So that's been kind of with me my whole life. And I come from a background of uh, deep spiritual thinkers and kind of faith people in my life who also were always open to how the human condition consistently throws loss at us. So how do we deal with loss? The gift that I think we've been given to deal with loss is the grief process because that grief process is what allows us to accommodate loss in our daily life and go further integrate it, hopefully, into our daily existence. And then once it's integrated in some fashion, that brings me, hopefully, to a closer place of empathy and the acknowledgement of compassion, which I think basically why so many uh, deep thinkers and spiritual leaders see compassion as kind of one of the highest human Uh, Mm -hmm. capacities that we can reach. Beyond empathy, compassion really lets me be able to say, when I see you, uh, whoever you are, whatever you are, or when I see nature or the world or circumstances, I can say, oh, there I am. And that's what I think is at the core, is that it goes beyond empathizing with other to identification. But the thing that I am preoccupied with is how inorganic our culture has become. You talk about the process of grief, and I believe in that. I believe in the healing quality of it. But it almost seems like everything in our contemporary world is set up to keep us from being able to go through the cycle. Yeah, I I would totally agree with you that it's a very difficult process today in our culture and in our time. Even as a young person in my late teens and 20s, I was speaking about how our culture does not prepare us for loss. We kind of go in and out of times where, you know, 
maybe a major work or a major influencer emerges and all of a sudden grief is at topic for a time. But the culture as a whole doesn't do a good job from young age all the way through of helping us to understand loss is a daily experience. Grief is our ally to be able to contend with that and integrate that. I don't really know the answer except that in my circles that I'm graced with to be with people, can we bring those conversations to topic and bring them to the discussion and the discourse that we're having? Of course, that's another whole topic is how difficult it is to have a discourse today, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. I would go out on a limb and say that clearly art and artists are the people who are dealing with grief and who are showing the way. And a great example of that is Tucson's All Souls Procession. Totally. Which was begun out of one woman's grief over the loss of her father, yep. which was mm-hmm. never an easy relationship. No. So um, now we have a yearly gathering of any soul in Tucson yep. living or deceased who and wishes to gather together. I will also say that I think for those of us who did not come up in a Latino-Hispanic culture but have the grace of living in this community that has such strong influences from the First Nations people to in the Hispanic culture is that so many people have found a space to experience grief that would have never really maybe gotten to that in such a way, and how many altars are created now in people's homes to keep the memory alive. I had a friend from years ago who never spoke of any person who had passed in their world, never spoke in past tense about them. It was always present tense. That never changed, even after they had been gone for 25, 30 years. So I think there's a space for that, that art, literature, poetry, all of the arts kind of bring together. Honestly, artists are, for whatever reason, we're just engaged in this process where we're really trying to be super self-aware, right? (laughs) Of our navels. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, sometimes. Yeah, Um, sometimes. In the past, when I visited All Souls with a microphone to capture recordings of people, I got a statement that I feel like is the best summation of All Souls I've ever heard. And it is, um, this is our chance to live for those who no longer can. Wonderful, huh? Yeah. So I have a really dear, dear, dear friend. His name is Enrique Feldman, probably known in the community through his music and some of his early childhood education work. He and I used to have long conversations about grief as an ally. And so I think that if we can have some people that are close to us that help us to keep in mind that grief allows us to, in a way, continue the life of those people who have passed and have them with us, that's really, I think, very sacred and very important. So Enrique passed away a little over a year ago, and it was a surprise and unexpected. So 
for me, I feel like each day I still carry with me that amazing life in this space somewhere that I kind of call the excavation that Enrique now lives in within my walk through life. You know, the processing of loss through grief does not always have to be heavily weighted, right? There are times when there could be some lighthearted expression too. So I have both in the book lighthearted and some pretty dense material like the piece about uh, Enrique that's pretty intense. But let me just share this little snippet that's kind of close to the front of the book and it's called Grief One. There is no leash restrains it. There is no cage contains it. Resisting just sustains it. Befriending grief though tames it. In Long Shadow Days, Grief Walking, you divide the book into three sections. Yes. Two of them are poems, and the third is prose. But let's talk about the second section, which is called Grief Takes a Holiday. Yeah. I'd like you to explain you know, what Grief Takes a Holiday means, why you called that section that, and then I'd like you to read a poem from section two. Sure. So, again, I feel like you know, grief is not always present either because we do live a life that's filled with both loss and many, many joys and many moments of receiving as well. And even though, you know, there's there's a wonderful author around literary structure that I love. His name is Will Storr. And he has a book that breaks down the science of storytelling, right? He goes through a process with that. The opening line of the book slays me. His very first line out the gate is, we all know how the story ends, <laughs> right? So at some point, our lives end, but they're not only filled with loss. They're also filled with gift. So I thought that there should be some collection of poems in the book that have to do with grief having a chance to take a bit of a break, not have to serve us so much because other things come into play that give us a little bit of a respite. So this section at times deals with um, romance, love, lust at times too, the joy and the experience of being an embodied creature on the planet at times too, and the rebirth that consistently can happen for us in terms of love and life. So just one small one is called Autumnal Romance. Oh, this sheltered season of the heart, ablaze in autumn sumac blush, finds still love's fires raging. Long Shadow Days, Grief Walking is published by A3D Impressions. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show is a production of AZPM. The music is by Calexico. 
The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The assistant producer is Leah Britton. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.